This is the River Radius, a cultural nexus of rivers, people, and boats. I am your host, Sam Carter. Welcome. We started blowing up boats. First thing that we were told is, is when you blow up your boat, you put it in the water, but don't put your feet, don't go in the water. There's crocodiles. And we all need to collect a whole bunch of crocodile rocks because the crocs will come after your boat. So we all had these big, big rocks. I mean, not boulders, but good sized river rocks to throw at the crocodiles. Cantaloupe size, cantaloupe or, you know, flat rocks. We want to be able to throw them far enough, you know. <laughs> I had probably 10 or 15 big croc rocks on my boat. And you had, to, you had to reload them. I mean, we used them all the time, you know, because there's a lot of crocodiles, 15-foot crocodiles. They're big, and they're aggressive. Thick, stout, big, ugly crocodiles. Like the ones that you think of when you think of a big man-eating crocodile, yeah, they're everywhere. This episode comes to you from the fan mail. Yes, we do have some fan mail here at the River Radius. As you may know, at the end of each show, I offer up that any of you can contact me about your ideas on show topics and leads on river culture. Today's guest did just that. Would you by chance be interested in doing a podcast on what may be the last ascent of the Blue Nile in Ethiopia? Uh, I was part of one of the first ascents 30 years ago. And it was also part of the last ascent in 2019. If you're interested, uh, give me a shout. That certainly caught my attention. We did get on the phone and suss out a few details and set up an interview. It turns out, Steve and I live about an hour from each other, and we were able to rendezvous on a riverbank in our neck of the woods here in the Four Corners. His story comes after this message from Jack's Plastic Welding. Jack's Plastic Welding has been working with the River Radius for the entirety of 2020. They built my stub nose cataract, my Paco pads, my dry bags, and I've been using all of that gear for many rivers. Jack's year-end sale is happening right now. All Paco pads, dry bags, and boats are 10% off now until December 23rd of 2020. This sale is accessible via direct online purchases from Jack's Plastic and from most retail shops that carry Jack's Plastic gear. You can find them on the web at www.jpwinc.com. That is www.jpwinc.com. My name is Steve Stahl. I'm 54 years old. I'm a native Coloradan. Steve has a unique job, and it provides context to the story. I am an RN, a registered nurse. I do transport nursing. I'm a flight nurse and I do uh, international medevac. So I transport critical patients from one state to another, one country to another on a Learjet. So has the most of your work been in, in, in country in the last 10 months? Yeah, since, since January. It's mostly been inside the U.S., once this virus came, um, things kind of shut down, and uh, and then I ended up getting the virus, the COVID-19, in April, and I was out of work until 
late June because I was I was sick, was hospitalized, and I was quarantined. What was it like being sick? Was it like a cough, a flu? It was like a flu. I came home from work with a fever one day, and I knew that I had been exposed to patients with COVID-19, and and uh, I uh, immediately quarantined myself. I have a little old vintage Airstream trailer that that I have on my property, and so I immediately moved into the trailer so I wouldn't get my family sick. And I spent about five or six days there before I realized I was I was getting sicker and sicker. And I got a couple of COVID tests in town. They were both negative, but at that point I knew that there was something else going on. I had a very high temperature and I couldn't breathe. And I went to Denver to a COVID unit or I was an inpatient for a week or so. And then I quarantined for a couple of weeks after that. And are you, are you all good now? Are you still having after effects? Uh, no, I have some after effects. I ended up with a few things like uh, asthma and, and uh, shortness of breath that I never had before. I also ended up with uh, high blood pressure, which I've never had a problem with. So those are kind of lingering effects. And uh, the doctors think, ah, might go away, might not. But this is kind of the new me. And you're back at work. I'm back at work, yeah. Your your COVID tests come up negative now. Yeah, exactly. Crazy. So with some distance, some fresh air and sunshine, and a flowing river next to us, Steve told me the story of traveling the Blue Nile in Ethiopia. We start with the basics. So, Steve, would you tell us about the Blue Nile? You've been down this, this river twice. Would you tell us where it is, what countries it is in, where it starts, where it flows through, its sister stream, and then Lake Tana? Tana? and uh, any other relevant info. The Blue Nile starts, it's a discharge in a spring coming out of Lake Tana, which is a relatively large lake in Ethiopia, in the northern, uh, northern section of Ethiopia. And the Blue Nile comes out of there at the city of Bahir Dar, um, which is a, a, I think it's the second largest city in Ethiopia after Addis Ababa. And it goes through some pretty tricky gorges, class five, class six gorges that have been run a handful of times between the 60s and 2015. Um, Very tricky water, uh, lots of danger. There's no escape from the white water when you're in there. These gorges are steep and there's a lot of danger with the, the crocodiles, especially the Nile crocodiles are up there. And then the Nile kind of meanders its way through the gorgeous gorge and it hits the, uh, the Black Gorge, which they consider to be the Grand Canyon of Africa with valleys and canyons about 4,000 feet deep. It kind of meanders its way through through uh, Amhara, it goes into the, the Gumez section, the Black Gorge, the, the Western Cataracts, and it makes its way through Ethiopia 
and then right at the Sudanese border, very close to the Sudanese border, there's now a, a dam that they started filling in February of this year, and it's called the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam. It's a project that is being built by the Ethiopian government to control the water and to control the water downstream for hydroelectricity and to sell the water. Right at the Sudanese border there, the, it, the water comes out of the, the GERD, the, the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam. It's about another uh, 600 miles to Khartoum. And Khartoum is where the Blue and the White Nile uh, converge. Khartoum is a, a city in Sudan. That's where the Blue and the White Nile converge. There's a lot of question on which is the real source of the Nile River, the White Nile or the Blue Nile. Most people seem to think that it is the, the Blue Nile is the bigger of the two sources, but the White Nile is also a, a considerably large headwaters and source of the Nile. From Khartoum it goes down and the river kind of meanders to the west and then back, goes into Lake Nasser, right at the Sudanese border with Egypt. And Lake Nasser is a, another hydroelectric dam that provides electricity to both Sudan and Egypt. And from there, the Nile comes out of Lake Nasser at the Aswan High Dam and floats freely to Alexandria, Egypt. And it's uh, a, a very large volume river at that point with cruise ships and a lot of commerce. So it's a, the longest river in Africa, the largest volume river in Africa as well. So you've been down there two times. Let's start with this first trip. My first trip was in 1987 when I was oh, 21 years old, something like that. And I was just by happenstance got an opportunity to go and, and run the river. I met a guy in a, in a coffee shop in Cairo and he was restocking a trip that was coming from the headwaters of the Nile. And we got talking and I told him I was a river guide. I had been a, a guide since I was a kid. I, I'd been kayaking and rafting since I, was, since I was, I don't know, eight years old, something like that. And uh, I had previously been working part-time on the Jordan River between the countries of Israel and Jordan. And um, I was traveling around and met this guy and um, asked him if he needed help and went with him up towards uh, Khartoum on a, on a boxcar in a train and floated um, with him and, and three other people back down to Alexandria. And that was 51 days, I think, 52 days. 87, is that what you said? That's when you, you did the yes. first trip? Okay. When you first went there, why were these trips even happening? There was a gentleman by the name of Richard Banks with Sobek who merged with Mountain Travel. Um, it was a, a travel company, adventure travel company. And they had groups that were going over there to explore the region. They were running the Omo River, which is also in Ethiopia. And they were doing side trips on the Nile. Those guys were coming down. They were trying to do a, a trip from the headwaters all the way to Alexandria. And, and they switched out halfway through 
and the trip made it, but all the participants switched out. So none of the people that were on the trip actually did the entire trip. As you have heard Steve say, he has traveled down the Blue Nile twice. His second trip was at the end of 2019. Uh, the second time I did it uh, was uh, in 2019, actually, we launched on the river a year ago today, which is the 23rd, I think, of November, 24th. We launched a year ago, and we were on the river for 21 days. And this is a trip that I found out about through Mountain Travel. They were promoting this trip, even though they weren't in charge of the trip, and saying this is the last ascent of the Blue Nile before the dam goes in. And I thought, I'd really like to see that. I think it'd be fascinating. I asked them who, who's doing this, and they connected me up with a guy named uh, Rocky Contos. He has an expedition company called Sierra Rios, and he does all kinds of international kayaking trips all over the world. And I called him, and he said, yeah, you know, we're going. We've, we've got room for some guides. And I got the information. This was back in... Uh, Oh, I think it was February or March of 2019, and the trip launched in November. And uh, we met in Addis Ababa at a warehouse called the Red Jackal. It was a touring company, and and uh, we all met each other, had lunch, and then got to work. We had boats to pull out of storage. There was a storage area with a tremendous amount of outfitter equipment. And, uh, and so we, we ended up spending a couple days working on, working on boats, working on equipment, and getting everything together. Doing a shopping for the trip, for a, a 20 some odd day trip uh, in, in an African city is not as easy as one might expect. And it took us a couple of days of shopping to do that. We had to go to multiple different uh, markets to get all the food that we needed. And that took quite a while as well. Um, but we got all the stuff together, loaded it all up in a, in a truck, and we got in a little bus. We took off for the river. It took about six hours to get down there. And then we dropped down to the river. And when you get in... When you're dropping down into the Blue Nile at the Renaissance Bridge, it's a huge, deep gorge, huge, deep gorge and valley. And like, how big? When you say huge, deep, Grand Canyon deep, Grand Canyon deep, four thousand feet. Layers of layers of like a cliff and, and uh, plateau layer, and yeah, exactly. Yeah. Layers of cliff and plateau, a um, lot of lot of foliage, and most of the foliage was was brown it wasn't uh green because of the season i think because of the season yeah but so you're saying the 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 trees are uh deciduous type yes, leafy. that's correct we drop down in and as we're winding down these switchback roads you can see old trucks that had gone off the road you know there's no such thing as a, a runaway truck ramp in ethiopia you just run off the side of the road and we saw all kinds of old tanker trucks and fuel trucks that had just gone off the side of the road and maybe exploded. They were all black and burnt, and they just left them there. There was no, okay, let's clean this up. There was just, it looked like a, 
a tanker truck graveyard going down there. Old cars that were smashed into rocks and this and that. So anyway, we get down to the river and we park next to a new bridge where there's a military guard stationed there. And the river's about, I don't know, a third to a half a mile away down this rocky path. And we've got, you know, 16 and a half foot boats and frames and boxes and coolers that are heavy. It's not an easy, uh, there's, there's no concrete ramps to back your boat down into. Um, it's not easy at all. So they hired a couple of kids to help us and we offloaded all this gear. It took us, I wanna say four or five hours of hustling to get all that gear down to the river. First thing that we were told is, is when you blow up your boat, you put it in the water, but you don't put your feet, don't go in the water, there's crocodiles. And we all need to collect a whole bunch of crocodile rocks because the crocs will come after your boat. Like the ones that you think of when you think of a big man-eating crocodile, yeah, they're everywhere. The Nile crocodile. These are freshwater reptiles that are present on the African continent in 26 of 54 countries. They can range from 9 feet in length to 18 feet and weights from 300 pounds to 1,600 pounds with a massive croc found at 21 feet and 2,300 pounds. Their mouth has more than 60 teeth. They have a strong bite on closure, yet not nearly as strong on opening. They have green eyes, and it is believed that their skin has the ability to understand pressure changes in water so they can better pursue prey. They eat both aquatic and terrestrial animals, and yes, they do attack and kill humans. From all readings and pictures, I think of them as a huge lizard that prefers to hide in the murky waters of a river. Crocs can live to be more than 80 years old. We eat dinner and go to bed. Next morning we wake up, load the boats, quick safety talk, and off we go. And uh, we float down the river, and we're having, you know, it's, it's pretty much flat water. Um, riffles here and there, class two, mostly just kind of flat water. And um, we get to our first camp, and I think the water was probably running, I don't know, at that point, maybe 2,000 CFS. There's, there's no gauges on, on these rivers until you get to the dams. So really had no idea. But I'm guessing it was running probably 2,000. And we get to camp, and it's a rocky beach, and then there's a big high bench that you have to climb up to to where you can camp. And Alex says, we're going to camp up there. We're going to put our kitchen down here, but everything else goes way up high. And I thought, well, that's ridiculous. We don't need to go way up. I mean, this is, you know, 60, 70 feet above the river. I thought, we don't need to go way up there, but I'm just going to let it go. We make dinner. We tie the boats. Um, there wasn't any trees, so we tie the boats with sand stakes that are buried deep in the, deep in the sand. And we go to bed and uh, wake up about 5 in the morning to some screaming. This is this is the first day on the the first night on the river. This is this is daylight 5 a.m. or dark? Yeah, daylight 5 a.m. And well, it's I mean it's still somewhat dark. Alex had gotten up 
the river had come up overnight to 20, 25,000. So it had come up significantly. And uh, two of the boats are gone. Two boats are gone, can't see them. One of them is mine. And it's got the trip first aid kit on it, the permit, medications, cameras, I mean, you know, everything, all my gear. And my boat's nowhere to be seen. The third boat has come loose and is floating in an eddy on the other side of the river downstream uh, an eighth of a mile. And he's hustling us. He's saying, I'm going to find boats. And he takes our interpreter, a 25-year-old guy named Tanau, and then they take the last boat and they leave and leave us. One boat, all the gear, and eight people, because we had a total of 10. So we have to get to the other side of the river to get that one boat, because right now we have no boats. So we get to, we, somebody got to the other side of the river. I was trying to figure out how we did that this morning. I can't re recall. But somebody got to the other side of the river, and he got that boat, and he, he ferried that boat back across. Otherwise, we'd be really screwed. Back across to your camp or to downstream? Camp, yes. Okay, back to the camp. Right. So we get all the gear on, and we get on the boat, and there's a pile of us on the boat, a little worried. I'm very concerned because all my gear, my passport, the trip permit, again, all the, <laughs> all my stuff is on that boat that's disappeared. And I think it was about 10 or 15 miles later, um, we find them. And they've, one of the boats was in the weeds and they had tied it up. And the other boat, um, the bow line was dragging and it dragged and got caught on a rock in the middle of the river. So we found both the boats the next morning and we felt very lucky. Um, it was a, a very worrisome situation to be in the middle of nowhere with nothing. There was nothing gone, nothing, no harm, no foul. We got everything back. Just a crowded, um, uh, terror-filled morning, yeah. <laughs> we wake up and we're eating breakfast. We get our boats loaded. We're going down the river. We come around a corner and see a what looked like a tarp floating on the river with some stuff on top of it and a bunch of people on the side of the river screaming at us and we saw this blue tarp and we saw a little bit of uh, some action next to this blue tarp uh, sp some splashing this was in the in the middle of the river the blue tarp was and some splashing around I didn't know what it was and these people started screaming and I had our group uh, a translator on my boat to now and I asked him what are they saying to now what are they saying he says the man on the bank his brother was going across the river and was taken by a crocodile and he just went under and he disappeared and they want our help to go get him and I giggled to myself thinking yeah that's gonna happen like what are we gonna do with a 15-foot crocodile in the river that had just taken this man and is probably trolling him around under the water. And I'm, you know, 
not far from him. But what am I going to do? Yeah, not like you wouldn't help if you had some skill, but it's uh, right. what do you do? I'm not jumping in the water. So anyway, this man was taken right in front of us, basically. W- was this man swimming with his tarp? Yes, he was. He wasn't he, on it. He was not on the it was a tar- it was a raft that was built with like some willow sticks and the tarp was wrapped around the willow sticks to make it floatable and then on top of that tarp and it was just an old ratty blue tarp and on top of that was all of his belongings and he was pushing this raft across the river to go somewhere i don't know where but he had all of his earthly belongings with him and he pushed, was pushing the raft across the river and, you know, holding onto it with his hands and kicking with his feet when he was taken by a crocodile. And there was nothing we could do. And people are yelling and chasing us down the river and screaming at us, um, help us, help us. I've got croc rocks, but that's about all I have. Um, we didn't have any weapons on the trip anything like that um we didn't know what to do we just kept going i said i'm sorry i I don't know what i can do it was about a quarter mile later we enter a little gorge and we see things falling off the raft there was a burlap sack there was a cane there was a few other things that were falling off of this because we were watching this raft go down the river in front of us and i collected a cane that belonged to this man. We collected a bag of t-shirts uh, that this man had in a burlap sack and we put them on our boat. And I asked Alex, hey, do we wanna, do we wanna stop and bring this stuff back to these people? And this was, I don't know, two or three miles down the river. He said, absolutely not. We're not stopping for this. We, we don't have time, we can't, we can't do this. So we ended up did did Alex speak the trip leader? Did he speak of this as if this was, I don't want to say a normal encounter, but that he understood that that this was uh, not abnormal? Yes, he did. This wasn't this wasn't the first time this had happened to him. By far, like you said, not a normal occurrence, but but uh, it, apparently it happens quite a bit. And, and you don't see people swimming in the Nile, in the Blue Nile River. They're, you just don't, people don't swim in there. And it's because of the, the crocodiles and the hippos and that kind of thing. So, and the river is brown and it's murky. And so there, there's really nothing that we can do. We can't see in the water. We can't see what animals are lurking in the river. We can't swim in the water. We can't even put our feet in the water because we don't know what's in there. So we're, we're confined to the raft. So unfortunately, nobody ever heard or saw that poor man again. He disappeared and that was it. And that was day two. And I thought to myself, this is gonna be a long trip. Between the, losing our boats the first day, watching a man get taken by a crocodile the second day, uh, we're, uh, we're in for, for quite a trip. Jack's Plastic Welding is the sponsor of this episode about the Blue Nile. 
I had the ad spot ready to produce when word hit the rivers last week that Herm Hoops passed away at home. Herm was great friends with Jack's Plastic. I called Jack's Plastic to see what they wanted to do. They asked that this ad spot remind us all how much work Herm put into caring for rivers and how Herm also worked to get some of our younger boaters engaged with river protection. From the archive of our past interview with Herm, I pulled out this short piece. There was this kid from uh, Carbondale, who I can't remember what grade he was in, sixth or seventh grade. Uh, he was doing a, a project and he wanted to interview me uh, about river running. The so, kid, the youngster, yeah. okay. So they had a Desolation Canyon trip and they stopped by for probably three or four hours and mm. this kid asked some really cool questions. I don't know what they are now, but it was obvious he had done his homework, you know. I couldn't get that out of my mind. And so when the Hall of Fame thing came up, you know, I'm done, man. I thought that that's what we need to do is develop these new people and not just young people like that, but show them, tell them that they need to pick up the sword. That if somebody doesn't do it, the party's over. And so, yeah, I introduced him and called him the day of tomorrow. My beard is gray and his friends pass away. I long for the places we used to play. I am the face of yesterday. The rest of the, well, some of the rest of the trip was a non-issue. We, we went down the river, we had some good rapids. We'd line the boats through a couple of class six rapids. One of those rapids wasn't really a class six, it was a class four but it had class six consequences at the bottom in the pool below where there was uh, a giant family of big smiling crocodiles. And if you flip your boat, you're done. So we wanted to make sure that we weren't gonna get eaten by a crocodile. So we decided to line the boats through there, which I think was probably a good idea. And we would stop at uh, side streams and fill our water. We started seeing more tribal people on the sides of the river waving to us and, and a lot of people that, I don't know if they'd seen white people before or if they had not seen white people before. But if we stopped for water, these people would come running down and little kids would look at us like we're from Mars. So like waving at you, waving at you like, get away from here waving like you're no up, just waving friendly waves like hey how you doing yeah yeah and then exactly. when they come to you you, you you're, you're stopping on the shores and they come the kids stare people stare understandably they stare um, at us we stare at them yeah right it's like you know we're we're in the cages in the zoo is to now is your, your interpreter to now is he able to host a conversation yes he speaks Hamaric, which is the one of the 30 different languages that are spoken in Ethiopia. You mean you really mean 30? I really mean 30, yeah. And it, what tell us about these conversations. I'm very curious about the relationship between your trip and the people of Ethiopia and the people of Ethiopia and their river. You know, for the first 10 days that we were on the river, we saw many people that were living in little villages and little grass huts above the river and they 
would come to the river to see us and then they, and do their laundry, wash their clothes, and they'd go back up, up high. Uh, I don't know if they were drinking the water or if they were not drinking the water from the river or if they're drinking the water from the side streams, the side rivers, I, I have no idea. But they're very interesting people, very curious, well-armed. They have, every group of people that we saw had these old Russian Kalashnikov rifles with bayonets on them. And whether or not they were loaded with ammo or not, I don't know. Well, they were what, all very friendly. What, why are they armed? I, I'm not really sure. There's, you know, there's crocodiles, there's hippos. Maybe they're using it to hunt big game. And they're Ethiopia. not necessarily, they're not really living in a, a municipality where they have a sheriff, so to say. No, no, nothing so they, like they that. So they could be their own, they could be their own sheriff as well. Yeah, exactly. No, they're, they, these are, these are people that have, you know, six or eight little grass huts or mud huts out in the middle of nowhere and that's it and then a few more a few miles down they'll see another little village of six or eight huts and they come to the river to to bathe to clean to to do laundry but they are not they're not they're not using the river we didn't for the first 10 days we did not see any boats on the river whatsoever and we thought this is really odd that they have this this resource but they're not using it at all. And then we started seeing these hollowed out canoes, you know, big, large trees that were hollowed out and made into canoes and people going back and forth across the river. Uh, and we thought that was really interesting. And we started talking to them and they told us that they would go back and forth because there was villages on opposite sides of where they were, where they could trade uh, charcoal, what they would do is they'd burn down their forest, collect the charcoal, and go up to other villages and trade the charcoal for other sundries, other like food, clothing, other necessities. But that was one of the big things that they traded was charcoal from cutting the trees down and burning them, or just burning them without cutting them down. About half the length of the Blue Nile River is in Ethiopia, and Ethiopia is about the same physical size as three states in the United States, Texas, Oklahoma, and New Mexico combined. It has a human population of around 110 million. There are many different ethnic and tribal groups within the political boundaries of Ethiopia living in various regions of the country. The Gumez people have a storied history, with modern populations of about 220,000 people living in Ethiopia and Sudan. We knew that we were coming up to a larger civilization of people um, because Alex had been down there and he knew what was going on and he actually knew the, the chief of the Gumez tribe. He had stopped there multiple times before. And so he, he kind of warned us before the trip, hey, if you have things that you want to bring as gifts for the tribal members, for the chief, um, these are, this is, this is good thing. These are things that mean nothing to us, but they mean everything to the people in the tribe. Um, and these people have, 
They don't have t-shirts. They don't have clothing. Everything's ripped up. They don't have sho They're making shoes out of tires when they, ha when they have shoes. They have nothing to build anything with. They have no rope, no string, no chain, no tools, no nothing. When we got there um, the night before, um, we, we met some of the people and we, we pulled over next to a, a canoe crossing and people came down and started talking to us and Alex knew some of these people. And these are tribal people. These, these are girls that are 13 years old, 14 years old, and they have at least two children with them already. You know, and, and uh, the warriors have guns and knives, um, but they're very, very friendly people and they, they have a great sense of humor. I brought a horse mask with me um, I don't know why I put it in my bag, but I thought it's something that I bring on every river trip. What, what's a horse mask? You know, it's a mask that you put over your face. It's like a horse's head. Literally for a horse or for a human? No, for me, for a human. It's like a Halloween mask. Okay. You put okay. it over your head and it's a horse. We get to camp and we're getting stuff set up and trying to figure out what we're going to make for dinner and this and that. And, and, uh... I put on my horse mask, and these people think it is the funniest thing they've ever seen. They all want to put on the horse mask, and they all want me to take their pictures of them wearing the horse mask. And I did. I took pictures of 30 people wearing my horse mask, you know, with their Kalashnikov and their bayonet. Uh, and, and just it, we had a really good time that night. Just hanging out with these folks, with the horse mask and and playing around and having a good time. It was it was really fun, and we saw lots of little kids, um, little babies that were sick. Um, I brought a plethora of of medical supplies with me. I found multiple children that had pink eye, and I brought some medications for pink eye. And I was trying to explain to the mothers, these babies have pink eye. You know, these kids have crusty, very crusty, red eye faces. And I kept explaining to the mothers, you need to, don't spread this around to everybody. Don't, don't let anybody touch your child. Give your child this medicine. Wash your hands. Of course, they have no soap. They have nothing. But keep your hands clean. Don't, don't touch the baby's face. Just keep the baby's face clean and use this medicine. And I'm telling these people this through Tanau, our interpreter, and he keeps telling me, these people don't understand. They're all gonna take two or three drops of this so they don't get it. And I have to explain, no, this is not preventative. This is, once you get it, this will, this will help you to cure it. But don't, don't give it to other people. I don't think they were that clear on the concept. Um, but people had scrapes and bruises and scabs, and, and a lot of them had these brands. Most of the women, when they're 12 or 13 years old, they get these brands on their face. And they have these checkerboard brands or these circle brands. You can see it if you look at the pictures. Um, I took quite a few pictures of these, these people. Beautiful, but they get branded, and it's... It's a form of, I, I guess it's a, 
part of growing up there and it's a form of it's considered beautiful there to have these giant brands on their face a brand on a on a, on a livestock is a is a measure of ownership right is that it's not the same no it's not okay not at all it's it's not the same it's a it's a a measure of beauty like getting a tattoo um or um, so are, are the brands unique to each person they are so maybe they designed them it's possible yeah they're cool looking i they look like they hurt like crazy when you get them done but i mean like i said this is mostly young young girls that have these um very young girls with children that have these but but we ended up giving away a lot of antibiotics and a lot of medical supplies treating a lot of people that had skin rashes ailments um cough medicines stuff like that i can't say for sure that these people use them correctly but i tried through to now to to explain to them this is exactly how you need to do this and hopefully it helped a little bit i don't know but we met with the tribe um, and there was probably a couple hundred of them um, the next day and they all came down to greet us and they were so thankful for everything that we gave that we, we, we gave them so many different things, just random objects. And they were so thankful for everything that we gave them. These are, these are tribe, tribal people that, like I said, a lot of them have never seen white people before. A lot of them have never seen the clothing that we're wearing, the boats that we're on. And I got, I don't know how many millions of pictures of these kids on our boats. They just, they didn't want their picture taken so much as they wanted their picture taken so I could show them on my camera and on my phone what they, what they look like because they've never seen themselves. Is, is there anything, is there anything right or wrong in this interaction? You know, this idea of maybe you're the first white person they've seen is that right or wrong is there anything wrong with the pictures and the giving the gifts and introducing to these this this idea that they need these random things i believe that there is a lot wrong with it is there I, any okay. i really do okay um these are people that are happy in their lives with nothing i mean to me when i look at these people they have no material possessions whatsoever. Zero material possessions. And by me coming along and giving someone a headlamp and a couple spare sets of batteries, are they gonna fight over that? I don't really think that was a great idea. But unfortunately, at the time, thinking about it, that's not what I was thinking. I was thinking, these are friendly people. They have nothing. Let's see if we have something that we can offer them. Uh, and that's what we did. Um, and then do you feel like that's the good side in it? I do. I do. We, we offered them things. We, we didn't feed them because we had very limited rations. Um, but, but we offered them 
gifts, basically, material object gifts. And I think they were very appreciative. And, and what it is is when we offer them these things, we laid out a tarp and we put the offering on the tarp. And this was all for the chief. So we give everything to the chief. Maybe the chief keeps it all. Maybe he distributes it to people that need certain things at certain times. I don't know. Maybe this is all tribal property um, and it's kept with the chief or kept with some person that's trustworthy and then when somebody needs it they can go to that person and ask for it. I, I don't really know. The, the language barrier was very significant. And we had a we had a, a good rest of the trip. We we did have a good time. And is the rest of the trip continuing to be flat water with rapids through villages through yes. cities? Yes, no cities, um, but flat water um, going going through these like these these smaller deltas um, going through the the cataracts, the western cataracts. Um, where the river opens up a bit and then it comes back together. There's some crazy currents. The river splits in multiple places, comes back together. Where we had these big rocks and beautiful camps, um, sandbars, and we floated right through there with really good current. Um, swirlies, and that's when we started to see the hippos. And that's when things got a little bit more serious because the hippos, they don't really care about croc rocks. Um, there's places where if you see the hippos and they'll, they'll pop their heads up and then they'll, they'll blow water out and then they'll disappear again. And they can hold their breath for five or six minutes. So you don't really know where they are. If you get between the baby hippos and the moms, They'll come and they'll attack your boat. And that's the next worrisome thing that we had was once we started seeing the hippos, in addition to the crocodiles, um, it, it, we had to be really on guard because the hippopotamuses really don't want us there. And so hippos, hippos will eat you? Yes, they will. They will eat you. They have huge mouths. They're super strong. The most dangerous animal, the de deadliest animal in Africa. And are they water only? Will they come onto the land to come after you? Yes, they will. In fact, I'll tell you, the layover day that we had, I woke up in the morning, and there was hippo tracks, and I'll sleep through anything. I woke up the day after our layover that morning, and there was a bunch of hippo tracks going on either side of my tent. And, and Alex told us, the hippos will not go through your tent. They'll look for the easiest path. So if you're inside your tent, you're okay. If you don't put a tent up, um, they'll trample right over you. That's why you put a tent up. That and the, the mosquitoes for malaria. Um, so we put a tent up every night. So the only time I saw uh, hippos on land were a couple days after our layover day. Most of the time, I just saw them on the water. 
Hippos are an ungulate mammal of Africa and live on land and in water to include rivers. Average weight for an adult is about 1,500 pounds with large males hitting 3,300 pounds and lengths of 10 to 16 feet. Some of their teeth continuously grow and are self-sharpening. Hippos do attack humans to include boats, yet their diet is mostly grasses. Hippos will group up in pods, sometimes with 100 hippos in a pod. But you see quite a few of them. I mean, they're, they pop up and they'll, they'll spout out and then they'll disappear again. When you see a hippo, you're supposed to ship your oars and float by quietly and not disturb them, not let them know that you're around, just float on by. And I've heard stories, Alex told us a story of a hippo that attacked a boat and destroyed a boat on a trip many years ago. I really didn't want that to happen. You, you arrived home from the Blue Nile in the winter of 2019, and a lot of things have transpired in Ethiopia. What do you know is transpiring there since your return as it relates to the Blue Nile? And that it can also be the, the, the engagements between uh, Ethiopia and Egypt. Well, I know that for 10 years they've been trying to start damming up the Blue Nile on the border of Ethiopia and Sudan on the, on the GERD project. And they finally, in 2020, said this is happening, and they started damming it in February of 2020. So I think that is going to be a huge impact for Egypt, who doesn't want this dam to go in because they're going to lose a significant amount of water to Lake Nasser, where they have their own hydroelectric plants. Um, and we're going to start seeing Lake Nasser shrink up. Um, and Lake Nasser is a, is a very large lake, but it's going to start shrinking up because the, the GERD dam is going to be backed up and it's going to be uh, letting out limited amounts of water. Um, I know that a lot of the people that we saw, a lot of the Gumez tribe that we saw had no idea that this dam is going in. I mean, it's been going in for 20 years. But these people don't know this. And they don't know that eventually they're going to start seeing the water flowing down the Blue Nile stop and start backing up. And it's going to start going up, or up and up. And it's going to start flooding their villages. And they're going to have to keep going higher and higher. I think a lot of these people don't know that. Um, we tried to tell some of them, but I think they don't really grasp the concept of what a, what a large-scale project this is. So it'll be very, I'll be very curious to see when these people are put out and they're relocated, how well they do without having the, the luxury of living on that delta. Um, Egypt is going to be without quite a bit of water. Um, they'll still have plenty. They still have the White Nile, which is a very large tributary. The Blue Nile will still be pumping plenty of water. And there's multiple other tributaries. 
um, that will be going into Lake Nasser. Um, whether or not their cruise ship industry will survive, I don't know. Uh, if there's enough water in the Nile to do that, I, I really have no idea. Whether or not their people that live along the banks of the Nile Delta in Egypt will be able to survive, um, I guess it remains to be seen. There's a, there's a lot to that. You know, I think about these ideas of um, building power, providing electricity for all these folks who may or may not want it. They can certainly turn it into usable energy. Infrastructure gets built. They can plug things in. They want to buy things. And then at the, same, at the simultaneous movement of certain tribes and, and, and residents of the, of, the, of the river corridor that get pushed out, pushed out, pushed out, need things, and then they become consumers. Right. Oh, it's a mess. It's exactly right, though. They become consumers where they once were not. All right. Anything else? I don't think so. Okay. Thanks, Steve. Thank you, Sam. I appreciate it. Wait a sec. Hold on. That was a pretty bland ending. Let's try this ending. I'm lying in the front of the boat, not really thinking about much because it's a flat river, and suddenly I hear a rapid, and I turn around and I look out, and right in the middle of the river, there's one big fucking hole. One big giant hole. And we're heading straight to it. Turns the boat up on end. I fall out and the boat comes back down. I go underneath the boat and it dumped my black pelican box that had all my stuff in it. The meds, the permit, the the money, the the, the box, right? And of course, we it was flat water box wasn't strapped down okay dumbass move on my part for sure i see the box going down the river and i see my green bottle of no ad sunscreen from target and i see the boat upstream of me and i think to myself i gotta get that box that's got everything that pelican box so i swim for the box grab the box and i'm swimming upstream towards the boat and I get about three or four feet from the chicken line, then I see a crocodile come out and grab the sunscreen bottle, which is six or eight feet from me. I was trying to get back in the boat as fast as possible, um, but I see the croc. This show is edited and produced by me, Sam Carter. All music is written and produced by Diabolical Sound Platoon. A Nile crocodile-sized thanks goes out to Steve Stahl for sitting down with the River Radius and sharing these stories. We are always looking for new leads on great show topics and river culture. That is how we got this last show. You can reach us by email, hello at theriverradius.com. Thanks so much for joining The River Radius. When you see a hippo, you're supposed to ship your oars float by quietly. I really love Slurpees. I'm always the trip trypophologist. We're using big words here. Thick, stout, big, ugly crocodiles. Well, if you must know, the only reason I did this entire thing was so I could get on your podcast. <laughs>